Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming out on this beautiful December day. Not a cloud in the sky. My name is Jamie Boskett. I am the president and CEO of the Virginia Historical Society. I'm really pleased to welcome you all to your Virginia Museum of History and Culture today uh, for the last banner lecture of 2019. Uh, so we're thrilled to have you here in this wonderful series and to be in the Robbins Family Forum uh, where it's nice and warm and nice and dry. Today's event is co-sponsored by our friends at the White House Historical Association, and we really truly appreciate their partnership, which has been growing over the years. Uh, Stuart McLaren, who is their president and CEO, he and I go way back. In fact, we were colleagues together at Mount Vernon in a, in a previous life. Uh, before we proceed with today's program, I'd like to uh, invite you now, please, to silence your cell phones or anything else that may make noise during today's program. This is our last chance to do it right in 2019. <laughs> uh, while you're leaning into your pocket to silence your phone, uh, I'd like to offer a few invitations and upcoming announcements, but also uh, ask you for your help in the fact that there's a busy afternoon on Arthresh Boulevard today, and we asked if possible if you could, if you parked in the back lot, to move your car by 1:45 today. So that's one for that should give you ample time to enjoy the lecture and if you're going to stay for lunch after. But by 1:30, 1:45 to move your car. Okay, on for some upcoming announcements. This Sunday, the 15th, uh, we'd love to have you stop by for some holiday cheer for our free afternoon uh, holiday open house at Virginia House. That will go from noon until 4 p.m. And we'll uh, uh, enjoy the house, which has been, they're fully decking the halls. In fact, they're finishing things up today. There'll be gingerbread men decorating holiday classics, music, some hot cider, all while exploring the house and some fellowship with your fellow neighbors. Uh, so I hope you'll join us for that. The next banner lecture will take place at 6 p.m. here, again, in the Robbins Failing Forum on Thursday, January 9th. Uh, that evening, we'll have a lecture from our colleague from the Library of Virginia, Brent Tarter, who will be talking about his new book, Gerrymanders, How Redistricting Has Protected Partisan Politics in Virginia. Uh, as we look ahead to the holidays, I'll also remind you that we have two really special exhibits uh, that are on display right now and will remain on display through the new year. The first is Founding Frenemies, Hamilton and the Virginians. And the other is Merry Christmas, Charlie Brown. So a nice, light way to round out the year. So bring, bring your kids, your grandkids, your neighbors to see both of those. Um, I, I'm sure you'll enjoy. And, and lastly, as we do f uh, round out the, the calendar year, I'd like to take just a moment to offer a word of thanks to the majority, the vast majority, in fact, as I look around this room, uh, that are supporters and members of this special place. Uh, we couldn't do this without you. I think you all know, because you've heard me say it many times, that we don't receive any federal, state, or local operating support. This is a real unique uh, situation through which we survive, we thrive, in fact, through your help and your generosity. So thank you. And you should know, as the stewards of this place, that we have had an absolute record-setting year. This year will be the highest attendance ever in our entire history of this organization. And not just by a little bit, 
our attendance is up about 20%. And I've just come back from a conference of all of my colleagues from across the 50 states. And this is not the trend right now. Museums and history organizations are struggling to draw interest. And I'm just so thrilled that through your help, we're doing something really worthwhile here. We have produced more exhibits and more programs and more activities than we ever have before. And the result is that people are coming and people are engaging in the story of Virginia. And boy, it's an important story. So this is good work that we're doing. So thank you for that. Uh, let's keep it going into 2020. And our big focus next year, of course, will be the centennial of the ratification of the 19th Amendment of women's suffrage. Uh, so we have several exhibits and programs that will uh, relate to some really interesting women in Virginia history as agents of change that have driven progress here in the Commonwealth. All right, on to today's program. Dr. Matthew R. Costello is the acting director of the David M. Rubenstein National Center for White House History at the White House Historical Association. He previously worked on the George Washington Bibliography Project for the George Washington Papers at the University of Virginia. Matt has received research fellowships from Marquette University, the United States Capitol Historical Society, and two of my very favorite places on earth, one, the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, and two, the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon. Uh, so he has some good cred that will stand up for today. He has published articles in the Journal of History and Cultures, Essays in History, the Dome, White House History. He's the author of the book, The Property of the Nation, George Washington's Tomb, Mount Vernon, and the Memory of the First President, copies of which are, of course, available for sale today, and he'd love to sign them afterwards. And I promise not to have too many uh, outbursts as I'm enjoying this lecture on my main man. Uh, but please, if you would, join me in welcoming Matt Costello. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, it, it's a pleasure to be back here uh, at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. I was a, a, a Mellon Grant Fellow uh, some time ago, and I did research here. And uh, it, it's a pretty incredible. Uh, what I remember when I was here even just five years ago and walking through the galleries and the exhibit space uh, and to see what Jamie and the staff have done uh, during that time. Uh, if you are new and you haven't seen it before, please go go see it. Uh, it's it's pretty incredible. And uh, as Jamie mentioned, uh, I'm going to be talking about his main man, my main man, uh, everyone's main man, George Washington. Uh, just out of curiosity, by show of hands, how many people here have been to the tomb at Mount Vernon? <laughs> wow, that might be a new record. <laughs> That, that looked like about 90, 90 some percent. All right, well then I guess uh, I don't have to talk, so uh, have a good day. No, it's, so uh, part of the reason I do that is because the story I'm going to tell uh, is, is started in 1799 and it's continued even today with Americans visiting Mount Vernon to visit the tomb of George Washington. Uh, so this is not a new phenomenon, it, it's been going on since then. And I just want to share a little bit of my research about why were Americans doing this? What were the types of things they were remembering in the 19th century? How did they want to remember George Washington compared to how we remember him today? And uh, to talk about sort of the battles and the struggles between these different groups to decide who Washington was and what his legacy should be. 
So this project actually started uh, within a graduate school research seminar. And I came across this instance in 1832 where Congress wanted to move George Washington's body from Mount Vernon to the Capitol Rotunda. Now, if you've been to the Capitol Rotunda, you know underneath it, they call that the crypt. And then beneath that, there's actually uh, an antechamber that was supposed to be designated for the remains of George and Martha Washington. Now, they wanted to do it in 1832 because it was the centennial of George Washington's birth. And unfortunately, it didn't happen in 1832, or fortunately, it didn't happen in 1832. But as I dug deeper, pun intended, uh, I found that there were other instances of different attempts to try to move George Washington's body. And it was at that moment that I decided that I had found my dissertation topic uh, in my new book, uh, looking at Washington's memory through the lens of the tomb. So how people interacted with the tomb, interacted with his memory, but also then how politicians tried to remove him from Mount Vernon. So unfortunately, our story begins where George Washington's ends. On December 14, 1799, between 10 and 11 o'clock at night, George Washington passed away uh, at his home in Mount Vernon in his bedroom. And uh, even though there were three doctors who attended, uh, they applied all the usual remedies uh, to cure the ailments of the, of the time. But George Washington ultimately succumbed to the illness he had. Uh, we believe he probably had acute epiglottitis, which is the swelling of the larynx. Uh, now, it would depend if he had viral or bacterial epiglottitis. If he had viral, perhaps he could have beat the illness. Uh, if it was bacterial, it wouldn't have mattered because we, they didn't have antibiotics. So the infection would have killed him. Now, I always give credit to my wife at this juncture uh, because she is the one who sort of pieced this together. She's a physician assistant. And when I was talking to her about Washington's death and she was asking me medical questions and I was trying to answer them as best as I could, and, uh, and she suggested that it was bacterial. And I said, well, how do you know that? And she said, well, did anybody else have symptoms? As far as I can tell, no. Well, um, what about his teeth? I was like, what about his teeth? <laughs> She's like, well, yeah. She's like, that's probably where the bacteria started. And then it went to the back of his throat, and that's where the infection began. And I was like, what? <laughs> that's brilliant. Uh, I'm going to totally take credit, but, um, <laughs> but I will at least tell audiences when I put out that theory that she deserves uh, the credit for kind of piecing the things together. So we believe uh, that it was bacterial epiglottitis. Uh, and if that was the case, Washington couldn't have been saved with the medical treatments of the time. But after Washington's death, uh, letters of condolence start pouring into Mount Vernon. Of course, you see letters from the usual suspects, and the Fred W. Smith has a lot of these today. Uh, you're seeing letters from the Adamses, from Alexander Hamilton, uh, from Governor Morris, uh, but then you're also seeing letters from the lesser-known Americans, ordinary Americans, who are writing Martha to ask for bits and pieces of her husband. Uh, one of the things they're asking for is hair. Now, that sounds strange to us today, but in the 18th and 19th century, it was quite common for family members to snip off a few locks, uh, and they would save them as mementos. Uh, and, of course, they could decide how they wanted to parse them out. Here is a, This is supposed to be a a locket with supposedly some of George Washington's hair inside. Now we don't know if it was actually Washington's hair or if it was trimmed off the family dog, but that's what people believe. Now, 
In addition to these letters, probably my, my favorite one, there's a man who writes Martha, and he insists that he served with George Washington uh, during the American Revolution. And he explains his situation, and he says, unfortunately, uh, by a mistaken identity, uh, I've been accused as a horse stealer, and uh, now I've been locked up in a penitentiary, and if you could write the governor of Pennsylvania and ask for a pardon on my behalf, I would be ever so grateful. Martha does not reply to this request. So there's a variety of different people, Washington's contemporaries, but then also other Americans who see Washington's death as an opportunity to either try to better their own circumstances or to acquire a piece of American history, a literal piece of Washington. Now in Congress, uh, in 1799, they had actually passed a resolution uh, unanimously, unanimously uh, to move Washington to the Capitol building and to be interred there beneath uh, a statue. Now, keep in mind, in, in 1799, uh, the federal government hasn't even moved to Washington. Uh, there's barely a capital. Uh, there's one chamber. Uh, so this is, of course, looking into the future. And when those things are finished, uh, they want to bring Washington's body once they're completed. This is actually a, a prototype design that was done by Benjamin Henry Latrobe, uh, the very famous English-trained architect. Uh, because for a while, it seemed like maybe the rotunda idea wasn't going to work out. So there was actually a different, uh, a different move to build a mausoleum uh, around the Capitol. Uh, and this is what it would have looked like. It would have been a pyramid uh, about 100 by 100 feet, uh, which and then if you do the math, it probably would have been one of the tallest structures uh, in the nation's capital. Uh, and it would have looked more like Cairo uh, as opposed to the District of Columbia. And as you can imagine, Jefferson and, and his supporters started questioning this in terms of the politics of the revolution. Did we not just fight a war against this idea of worshiping a single person? Wasn't that why we rejected monarchy? If we're gonna commemorate the revolution, shouldn't we be commemorating all of the people who contributed to independence? Now, obviously the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans were already at each other's throats, but this idea of how Washington should be defined becomes a very contentious political issue. The Democratic Republicans believe it's okay to commemorate Washington's military greatness, but we don't want to talk about his politics. <laughs> and the Federalists say, no, 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 you have to talk about everything. George Washington was the greatest thing that ever happened to this country. And Jefferson supporters are just saying this because they want him to be the number one guy. And they go back and forth. And eventually, because of the elections of 1800, the Federalists lose control of Congress. And this mausoleum never materializes. So now the issue of moving Washington sort of fades away. Uh, it emerges again in 1816, shortly after the War of 1812 and the burning of Washington, uh, because Americans are concerned that Washington's remains are not safe at Mount Vernon, because during the War of 1812, you know, British ships did get pretty close, pretty close to proximity of Mount Vernon. So, uh, in fact, there are even these rumors that appear in the newspapers that the British were thinking about stealing Washington's body and taking it back to England for display. Uh, people could be a little paranoid in times of war, as you imagine. Uh, but the owner of the Mount Vernon at that time was Supreme Court Justice Bushrod Washington. And in 1816, the Virginia General Assembly petitioned him to remove Washington's body and bring it here to Richmond. And what they wanted to do was build a monument here and then inter Washington's remains in the state capitol. 
Now, Bushrod Washington's in sort of a tight spot. <laughs> he's a federal justice. Uh, he's tended to be, for the most part, falls in line with Marshall's federalist leanings, but he is still a Virginian. And what he decides to do is simply look at Washington's will, and he says, it's very clear in my uncle's will, he wanted to be buried at Mount Vernon. Case closed. Now, the issue of interment at Mount Vernon doesn't go away because also in the will, George Washington asked for a new tomb to be built. His family fails to do this for about 30 years, which I guess it just goes to show you, you can never trust family to do a good job. Maybe that's why you need an outside contractor to do it. And that's what they end up doing. Uh, they actually end up getting an Alexandria stonemason named William Eaton, uh, who will design the new tomb uh, and then encase it in brick a few years later. Uh, and then he'll be there to add the Gothic arch. But this is actually what the, new t the original new tomb looked like. So if you've been to Mount Vernon, you've seen that old tomb, uh, which is kind of by the water. Um, some of the visitor counts are pretty humorous because they're talking about the decrepit state of the tomb. And uh, one visitor says, I saw a woman crying at the ice house, but she thought it was the tomb. Uh, so it, it just goes to show you how uh, people saw this tomb. And when they came to Mount Vernon, they thought it was completely unacceptable that someone like George Washington would be housed in a place like that. One gentleman said, I wouldn't put my pigs in there, which I get, that's a pretty big insult. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how many of us have pigs, but you get an idea of how bad that would have been. Now, after they build the new tomb, uh, John Augustine Washington Jr. passes away. The house passes, the property passes to his wife, Jane Charlotte Blackburn Washington. And then her son, John Augustine Washington III, I'd like to call him Jaws III, uh, but not like that terrible movie. Um, the original is by far the best, but Jaws III, uh, he actually manages the estate on behalf of his mother until she dies, and then he inherits the estate. And uh, John Augustine Washington III essentially puts into place the early practices that we start to see later with the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, that this place is starting to become more of a tourist destination, and there are ways to accommodate tourists, and there are also ways to profit from tourists. And John Augustine Washington was a departure from the previous owners because most of the Washington family members resisted any type of interaction with people. I mean, you have to imagine uh, you're at home and strangers just keep walking through your house and they're saying, hey, uh, where did that really famous guy die in here? And Bushrod Washington just says, that's enough. We're not following that policy anymore. He essentially bars people from coming in. And unless you have a letter of introduction or you know the Washingtons personally, you're not getting in. So all these trespassers are just sort of on the property. And who's left to interact with them? It's the enslaved community of Mount Vernon. Uh, because Bushrod Washington brings slaves with him to Mount Vernon. John Augustine Washington Jr. will bring slaves with him. John Augustine Washington III. We have these transplanted slave communities, and they really become the first historical interpreters on site because for the most part, the Washington family does not want to interact uh, with a lot of these people. So John Augustine Washington takes measures to try to make Mount Vernon more accessible, more democratic, but also at the same time, he wants to make money and uh, one of the things he does is he actually enters into a contract with a steamboat company so they can start landing people directly at the wharf. Uh, he has this plank walkway built uh, from the wharf that goes all the way up to the new tomb. In fact, 
he charges the steamboat company not only for the wood, but he charges them for the labor of his enslaved workers. Uh, so he's very business savvy, and he also takes advantage of situations. Uh, he's very crafty. And the steamboat company, uh, the famous one was the Thomas Collier, but there were other ships that ran down there. Uh, the, the Collier of the Alexandria and Washington Steamboat Company entered into this contract, and eventually it got to the point where John Augustine Washington III uh, was able to collect, uh, I think, 25% of their ticket sales. So he made pretty good money off this exchange. And of course, we see the handbills. Uh, you can see the plank walkway in that image. And again, remember, the house is sort of off limits. So what is the primary draw for people who want to go to Mount Vernon? It's the tomb. Now today, I think it's, it's sort of reversed itself, right? Because when you go to Mount Vernon, you can go see the house. But in the 19th century, if you couldn't go see the house, the tomb was the primary attraction. He also entered into a contract with a man named James uh, Crutchett. Uh, Crutchett was more well known for installing gas lighting in the Capitol in the late 1840s. Uh, but he also started a less successful business in Washington, D.C., crafting uh, George Washington memorabilia out of wood from Mount Vernon. Uh, and this is an example of a, of course, you have the metal, uh, the engraved metal, and then lined in with some of the wood from Mount Vernon. And of course, what is going to be the image? It's the tomb of Washington. Now, if you're going to purchase something, you're going to need something to prove to people that it's legitimate. So luckily, they came with certificates of authenticity, just like you would get off like the Home Shopping Network or anything like that. Uh, you would get some poetry, uh, a very nice certificate that attests to the uh, William Magruder, who's the mayor of Washington, D.C., attesting to you know, the good intentions of these men, and they are of the highest character. Uh, what's really interesting about John Augustine Washington's statement, uh, he says this is to certify that Mr. James Crutchett of the city of Washington, District of Columbia, purchased from me a large amount of timber, trees, etc., standing on my estate in Mount Vernon in Virginia. A portion of the timber uh, was standing on the same hill on which the mansion and the tomb at Mount Vernon stand. He's very good with his words. He said a portion. It was a very small portion because a lot of the wood actually came from another part of the estate. And some of it even came from down along the shoreline. Now today, when you go to Mount Vernon, this is where uh, the Pioneer Farm is. In Washington's time, he referred to it as hellhole. And he called it hellhole because nothing grew there. George Washington was flummoxed and frustrated. He couldn't get anything to grow down in that space of the estate. So he called it hellhole. It's where things go to die. Apparently, uh, some of the wood came from there. Um, so very crafty to say a portion of. But this business didn't do as well as people would have thought. In fact, people preferred to go to Mount Vernon and buy the real thing as opposed to buying this uh, from James Crutchett in Washington, D.C. And when they went to Mount Vernon and the Washington family was shut in and they didn't want to have anything to do with these visitors, it was the people working the estate that oftentimes ended up interacting with uh, these tourists. And what's interesting is, you know, obviously the sources, a lot of them are from the perspective of white visitors, but what are the things that they remember and recall in their conversations with enslaved workers at Mount Vernon? And sometimes it was the usual myths, talking about cherry trees and, uh, and talking about Washington, you know, hurling stones over rivers. And then other times uh, it was sort of the whimsical, oh, George Washington and I used to wrestle in the grass. Uh, in fact, one time I pinned him. 
Um, and then there's also these instances where they talk about George Washington freeing his slaves and his will. And that was a memory that most Americans chose to forget in the 19th century. Uh, that example was not applauded uh, or approved. For the most part, that memory just sort of slowly slipped away. And people tended to focus on Washington's military achievements, his political career, his, his business acumen. Uh, but most people tended to leave that be. But there were enslaved people on the estate that kept reminding people, well, you know, George Washington did do this, too. Now, they also sold souvenirs. And I would argue that uh, the enslaved and free African-Americans who were either working on or uh, working on the estate or lived on the estate, uh, they were much more successful in selling these things than James Crutchett. In fact, uh, this is a piece of a musical score sheet from here. Uh, this is what I found when I did my research here. Uh, and this is, of course, the Washington's Tomb Ballad, because you haven't made it unless there's a ballad about your tomb. And you can see in the picture an African-American man sitting to the left of the tomb with a number of walking sticks, canes, lined up next to him. If you go to Mount Vernon today, you can still buy uh, these sticks and these canes. They still sell things from wood that befalls on the estate. Uh, but what was interesting is the Washington cane became one of those popular tourist things. It was not only the enslaved workers who were making them, but also people started ripping down tree branches. And part of the reason why the Mount Vernon looked the way it did in the 1850s was tourist vandalism. Now here's a picture. This is shortly before the Civil War. I mean, you can kind of see the, obviously I think it's the time of the year also, but sort of the devastation around the tomb. And if you see that, that looks more like a middle-class affluent gentleman standing at the tomb a small African-American boy or teenager standing looking into the enclosure, you can see in the shadow he's holding up a walking stick too. And this is actually post-Civil War. This is a man named Jim Mitchell who worked at Mount Vernon uh, through uh, shortly before the Civil War uh, and then came back later, and he worked for the Mount Vernon Ladies Association. And again, you can see what's sitting behind him. It's walking sticks. And for a lot of Americans, they saw this as an opportunity to take a piece of Washington's world with them. They could go home, they could tell people about their experiences, but that they also had something physical uh, that they could hold and present. Now, in addition to the politics of removal, uh, John Augustine Washington III trying to profit in terms of historical tourism, uh, and the enslaved people who often shared Washington folklore or sometimes wrote themselves into folklore, uh, there was also Washington's family that pushed a very different narrative. Uh, for the most part, the Augustan Washingtons really tried to avoid this controversy of moving George Washington's body. But there was one man who was eager enough to take it on for everybody, uh, George Washington Park Custis, who really sort of became the fam... I like to think of him as he was like George Washington's publicist um, or spokesperson. So he loved giving speeches, talking about his step-grandfather, um, even when he moved into Arlington House and uh, after Martha had passed away, a lot of the Washington objects, uh, the artifacts, uh, the services, the letters, all of those came to that house. And then it was later given to his daughter and who was married to Robert E. Lee. Uh, so outside of Mount Vernon, by the time of the Civil War, uh, Arlington House probably had the next biggest collection of George Washington era objects and, and artifacts. 
And in his recollections in the 1850s, George Washington Park Custis is not only adding different layers to the story of the, of the legends of Washington, uh, but he's, he also directly puts it in his recollections. He recites a conversation that he had with Martha Washington when she was dying. And he says that it was Martha Washington wanted them to be buried in the Capitol. Now, it's, I think it's pretty interesting. He puts that in after the, it's probably about 50 years after she's passed away. But he's just not letting this idea go that the Washington family deserved a place of repose of national honor and Congress has failed to act. Uh, so he kind of reopens that can of worms in the 1850s. Now, at the same time, uh, remember, most Americans, even though there's greater access to Mount Vernon than ever before because of steamboats and omnibuses and carriages, uh, most Americans will not get to see Mount Vernon in a lifetime. So the closest they might get to to interact with it is the visuals, is the imagery, its engravings, its paintings. Uh, and what you get sort of coinciding with all of this is the rise of the Hudson River School, really kind of capturing America's scenic beauty. And oftentimes, you, of course, you have Niagara Falls, uh, you have the Susquehanna River, and then you have Washington's Tomb. You have all these naturalistic sites, but then Washington's Tomb is lumped in with the collection. Uh, and this one is actually by an artist named Joshua Shaw, and this is supposed to show the old tomb at Mount Vernon. This is a later engraving uh, that was done by uh, Alexander Dick and William Henry uh, Brooke. Again, you can kind of see what is the primary focus. It's the tomb, it's not the house, right? The house is pretty much always in the backdrop. And that, again, kind of tells you when Americans wanted to know more about Washington or they sought visualizations of Washington or artists created these things, they prioritized the tomb. Uh, this was painted by uh, a William, Matthew William Pryor, um, who was not a classically trained uh, artist, but you can see again, uh, the tomb is in the foreground. Uh, you have this visual setup where the house is in the background. You can also see the house looks in pretty rough shape by the 1850s, uh, but really the tomb is the focal point uh, and you're surrounding it with nature and beauty and the abundance of America. So that really fits in uh, with that wider cultural movement of what Americans desire in terms of aesthetics and in terms of popular culture. Now, to the people actually visiting Mount Vernon itself, um, they oftentimes called themselves pilgrims on a pilgrimage going to collect relics. Uh, when I was at Mount Vernon recently, I was talking to a gentleman by the tomb, and I asked him if this was his first pilgrimage. And uh, he kind of looked at me, um, cocked his head a little bit, and he was like, I don't, I don't understand what you mean. I was like, a pilgrimage to Mount Vernon. And he looked at me like I had three heads. But... That tells you a little bit about how the language has changed from the 19th century to today. I mean, today, people consider themselves visitors, and they're going to Mount Vernon, and maybe they buy souvenirs. But in those days, they used very different language. They talked about being pilgrims on a pilgrimage to collect relics or mementos or keepsakes. And I think part of it had to do with, uh, you know, Americans try to understand the significance of the site. Was it a historical significance? Was it a religious uh, significance? There was some sacredness to it. I mean, that's how they described it. And oftentimes that meant because you made that journey, you were then entitled to take something. And people took all sorts of things. They took 
uh, leaves off lemon trees. They took, uh, they ripped branches off trees to make walking sticks. They carved their names in the tomb front face and in the door and in the gazebo. Uh, so you have to imagine like there's initials basically scrawled all over uh, the estate. Uh, my favorite example I found, there was a man who actually took uh, three flour barrels full of dirt. Uh, I guess he was going to sell Mount Vernon dirt uh, wherever he came from. Uh, but it just goes to show you that if you made that journey, a lot of these visitors felt that then they were entitled to take a piece of Washington with them. And some were even lucky enough to grab a piece of his coffin. Now, the story behind this, it's a little, it's a little convoluted, but uh, from what I understand from my research, Washington was buried in 1799. Uh, Martha followed shortly thereafter. Uh, and pretty soon it was obvious that the old tomb was much too small. And uh, they built a new tomb in 1830-31, and then they moved the family members from the old tomb to the new tomb in 1831. Uh, in 1835, uh, then they added uh, the outside exterior brick uh, that we're used to seeing. And then there was a marble sarcophagus, which I'll show in a few slides, I think, uh, that came down in 1837 to house George Washington's remains. So that was the last time Washington was physically moved. He was put into the marble sarcophagus. It was sealed, and he's been there ever since. But in the old tomb course, since you had upwards of about 18 to 20 Washington family members, there were a lot of broken bits and pieces of coffins. Now, do we know if this piece was from George Washington's coffin or someone else's coffin? Well, there's a good chance since from the same tomb. Uh, but people were actually going into the old tomb to look for scraps. And then, of course, they were marking it that this was a piece from the coffin and Washington was buried. Um, and there were also some really interesting stories about, uh, you know, when they moved Washington's body. Some people claimed that he was floating in alcohol. Uh, not true. Um, there were others that said he had been undecayed. He was basically a, like an uncorruptible, a saint. Uh, no, that's not true. Uh, have you been outside in Virginia in the summer and then <laughs> multiply that over 30 years? No, I'm sorry. He, it, it was normal. Um, there was one man, in fact, he died in 1912 at age 88. His name was Hugh Lane, and he claimed to have seen George Washington's face when they moved him. And all he said was there was a dark spot on his cheek. Uh, but he also got the year wrong that they actually did the movement. So uh, I'm not calling Mr. Lane a liar, but it seems pretty suspect. Now, this marble sarcophagus was given... Uh, to the executor of the estate at that point, uh, Lawrence Lewis, who was Washington's nephew. He was the last living executor of the estate, uh, and he lived at Woodlong, uh, not too far from Mount Vernon. And uh, this man named John Struthers very generously donated a marble sarcophagus to house the remains of George Washington. And uh, the man who designed it, William Strickland, he also wrote an accompanying history of this whole incident. And what's really interesting is that Strickland talks about them bringing the marble sarcophagus down to Mount Vernon. And for all of you that have been to Mount Vernon, doesn't that door in the back look pretty small? Well, according to Strickland's account, they got down there and then they realized it. It's like they tried turning it and it says, <laughs> oh boy. 
Um, so they went up and they talked to Lawrence Lewis and they said, you know, we were thinking and it might be better for people to be able to see this and then they can really appreciate it. And if we put it in the inner vault, it could get damaged because of the moisture and the water. Lawrence Lewis says, that's a great idea. Yeah, we'll, we'll put it outside and we can build an enclosure over the top of it. So probably the most famous part of Washington's new tomb, it seems based on Strickland's account was sort of by, done by poor measuring, uh, but it's a beautiful sarcophagus. And it was done in 1837. Martha's was built shortly thereafter. Uh, but we can't be too kind to Struthers. He did write his name on the bottom of it. Uh, and he said that this was given with the generosity of John Struthers. And it was very self-congratulatory. And eventually, at some point, it was removed. Because if you go there today, it's not on the foot of the sarcophagus. Now, the final section of my book talks about... Okay, so we've had politicians trying to move Washington's body. We've had artists and poets and writers trying to amplify different bits and pieces of Washington folklore and profit from it. We have Washington's family that have their own motivations about the legacy. But who actually steps in and claims Washington's memory? And I argue that it's the Mount Vernon Ladies Association of the Union at that time, of the Union. And uh, they were led by this woman, Ann Pamela Cunningham, uh, who was a woman from South Carolina. And uh, initially, uh, her focus was really to save Mount Vernon. In fact, her, her call was to the women of the South. So uh, today, I think everybody thinks of Mount Vernon as a national organization representing all of these nationwide states. But originally, it was to save it for the South. And uh, there's this great letter um, where... Her secretary, uh, uh, Thomas Gil Gilmer, is advising her not to allow Northern women to join this organization uh, because he thinks it's, he call, I think he calls it an unholy alliance. Um, and luckily, Anne Pamela Cunningham doesn't listen to him um, because she understands that there's a lot of money in the North and that these women have pretty strong political networks. They can sell things and that with a more organized national group that they're going to have a greater chance for success. So she disregards that advice, thankfully. Uh, she enlists the help of not only uh, everybody I think knows about Edward Everett's uh, efforts, uh, not only publishing articles for the New York Ledger, but uh, also giving lectures around the country to help raise money using the ticket sales to donate it. He ends up raising about $68,000 uh, and they ended up having to pay $200,000. Uh, so he raises a substantial amount. Uh, there's also uh, Yancey Nates, who does something similar in the South. Uh, so she s sort of enlists two different orators, one who is the Washington, the Southerner, and one is Washington, the Constitutionalist. So again, you kind of have competing Washingtons out there. Now, during the Civil War, the, the association really did their best to maintain a policy of neutrality. And part of the reason they did this is because they had acquired the estate in 1860. And they saw that there were numerous examples of the federal government and the Union Army seizing Washington-related sites and items. So probably the most famous one is Arlington House, uh, which then they found uh, essentially a treasure trove of different Washington family objects and letters. Uh, but there were also more unusual instances. Um, for example, there's the statue that's taken from, uh, I think it's Virginia, uh, Virginia Military Institute, 
Uh, the statue of Washington is torn down and taken back to uh, Wheeling, West Virginia. Um, in fact, it, go, it, it apparently gets so out of hand that Southerners feel like they need to hide uh, George Washington things. Um, in fact, if you go down to Savannah, uh, outside the city hall, there are cannons that Washington gave to the city as a gift when he did his tour of the South. They buried those cannons just in anticipation when the Union Army was heading towards Savannah, and they, they didn't unbury him until the Union Army left. But at Mount Vernon, uh, since that territory was primarily held by Union forces, uh, it was mostly Union, uh, Union soldiers who were visiting the estate. But what was remarkable about that is that there was still all this gossip in newspapers about how Confederates were ransacking Mount Vernon and uh, they were going to steal George Washington's body. Um, it was all hogwash. So, uh, but what's important to note about it is that Sarah Tracy, uh, who Ann Pamela Cunningham had put in charge of the estate because she was in South Carolina, she was trapped behind the, the lines, and uh, she didn't make it back to Mount Vernon until after the war. Sarah Tracy was a New Yorker, so she put her in charge, and paired with her was a Virginia man named uh, uh, Upton Herbert. There, he, he's on the right, uh, and Sarah Tracy there is sitting in the portico. But by pairing a northerner and a southerner, they wanted to project, again, this neutrality. And uh, Sarah Tracy, think of it as kind of putting out like an immediate press release. There's no such thing. Nobody took Washington's body. Uh, nothing of, of, of that sort has happened. I mean, it's a pretty defiant statement. Uh, but then... You know, people that come visit Mount Vernon after that say, oh, it appears that nothing's been moved. Uh, perhaps the newspapers were mistaken. Uh, but in times of war, those types of rumors, I mean, they could get accelerated pretty quickly. So even though, you know, the ladies were really, and it, I was just thinking about this when Jamie mentioned that we're coming up on the centennial uh, of women's suffrage in this country, you know, even though these women were not permitted to vote, uh, it's pretty remarkable what they were able to do, uh, sort of working within the political networks here in Richmond, uh, but also their friends in Washington, D.C., uh, to secure the Charter of Incorporation from the state here first, uh, but then also to ensure that they were able to maintain neutrality at Mount Vernon because, um, you know, the Union Army also, the federal government uh, stopped waterfront traffic. So now they, there were no more steamboats. There were no more tourists coming. Uh, so really the site was in a state of disrepair and they couldn't really start any type of preservation projects uh, until later after the war. But ultimately their success, you know, to raise the money, to buy the estate, and in fact they say this time and time again in the newspapers that they bought it for the nation. Um, and it gets back to the title of the book, The Property of the Nation. And this was a phrase that Americans used throughout the 19th century to talk about George Washington. Did George Washington belong to Virginia? Did he belong to Delaware? Did he belong to the South? Did he belong to the North? Uh, and these were the types of questions that people kept asking over and over again. And I think if you ask most people today about George Washington, you can probably find some kind of consensus about who he was and what he meant uh, to the American experience. But it was a very different story in the 19th century. Uh, and we're just really sort of experiencing uh, the end result, the consensus of that. And that even though we today uh, could reach that agreement, a lot of Americans in the 19th century couldn't. Thank you.
I'd be happy to take any questions you might have. Is it true that George Washington's blood transfer transfer um, helped him to die, or what? So, it so the scholarship suggests that he dies of epiglottitis, and uh, it, depending on if it was bacterial or viral, I believe it was bacterial. So a blood transfusion wouldn't have mattered. Uh, he didn't have antibiotics. The infection would have eventually made him septic and his organs would have shut down. Was Washington buried in a military uniform or civilian clothes? So he was actually buried in what are called grave clothes. It, it would have been more like a, a wool, uh, kind of like a, I don't want to say nightgown, but it would have been more like that. Uh, so he wasn't buried in military garb. Hi, I read an article very recently, and I think it's true that the bacteria, what you, you and your wife state is correct, but they bled him so much, mm -hmm. which was the, the treatment of the day, right. that he probably died from, I mean, the conjecture, and it's probably correct, mm -hmm. is he died from blood loss and anemia. Mm -hmm. He just didn't have any blood volume left, relatively. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's possible. Um, I do think that the one thing working in counterance to that is that, you know, Washington was an, a very big person for his time period. Um, so just in terms of volume, he would have had, no, you're shaking your head. Okay. I'm a physician. Everybody has about eight liters of blood. Oh, okay. So, you're, so you think the bacteria, I should stop talking about the bacteria theory then? <laughs> I was just curious. Um, so you're, so what you're saying is the immediate cause of death was blood loss. Okay. I'll make sure I clarify that then next time I say it. Yep. Are there other family members buried alongside Washington? Yeah, so when they moved everybody from the old tomb to the new tomb, uh, the Washington family talks about moving about 20 family members. And then there were also some family members that were buried uh, between 1831 and 1860. Uh, so the, the marble shafts that are outside, those were actually erected in the 1850s. They're supposed to be in honor of the two previous owners, John Augustine Washington Jr. and uh, Bushrod Washington. Uh, so based on the number of burials that have been documented, there's probably, I would say, about 30, 35. Is it a one-day room or what? Yeah, it's sort of like a large inner chamber space. Um, and actually, there's, uh, if you go to Mount Vernon, they have this great resource. They have John Augustine Washington III's uh, farm books, and he actually diagrams where the, the coffins are uh, and who is where. We, we had a Masonic uh, speaker that mm -hmm. uh, supposedly was at the uh, grave when they went from the old grave to the new. Mm -hmm. And he said that they had opened the grave and saw Washington. Is that true? Have you ever heard and that? And they saw? They saw Washington's body in there. So there's a few different accounts where people say that they saw Washington's body. Um, 
I mean, was if he was present when they did the removal, um, based on Strickland's account, he would have seen it. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts as to why Martha burned his letter, some of his letters? I mean, that was really keeping in line with what a lot of spouses did when they lost someone. Um, th th so that wasn't uncommon for them to burn correspondence. I think at the moment there's only been three or four, three letters that have been discovered between George and Martha that survived. Um, I mean, I'd also like to really see when he decided to burn the other will. Um, I mean, I've always kind of speculated what could have been in that other document. Uh, but that was, that was customary. Yeah.